Welcome to the Health Autonomy at End of Empire podcast on Mask FM. A semi-monthly investigation into the struggle to create health autonomy and the revolutionary care to build a new world. If you're interested in supporting our network with a monthly donation, please visit patreon.com slash maskfm. Hi, and welcome to the brand new Health Autonomy at the End of Empire podcast. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm here with uh, my co-host, Babak. You want to say hi? Hi, this is Babak. Uh, and we're going to uh, introduce the podcast today, introduce ourselves, and kind of talk a little bit about what we hope to talk about and what, what the, the aims are for this podcast as we, uh, we dive into the, the podcasting world uh, and, and uh, dive into issues around health autonomy. Uh, so just to begin, so my name is Frank. Uh, I'm an ER doctor, uh, so I work in the ER. Uh, I used to work here in the city and now work at a bunch of places upstate New York. Um, and uh, I've been working uh, around the country doing health stuff. And uh, we said to talk a little bit about the podcast intro and the podcast purpose and um, kind of maybe a little bit of our histories uh, and kind of how we got here to, to be doing a podcast at Mass Magazine. Um, so and then uh, and then talk a little bit about uh, what we mean when we say health autonomy and, and what are some of the issues that we hope to dive into as we progress through this podcast. So like I said, uh, so I, I just finished residency as an ER doctor uh, here in the city and uh, I've been on a struggle uh, to find health autonomy for the past, uh, you know, probably eight years. Um, and for a lot of a lot of people in medicine, uh, I came through through the world of medicine kind of like in a very, uh, um, I guess, traditional way. So I, I initially uh, wanted to become a doctor because I broke my arm a lot when I was young. I wanted to be uh, an orthopedic surgeon after high school and I was going to work for the Mets. And I had a very long trajectory of uh, great med school, great college, great med school, great residency, uh, driving BMWs by the time I was 30 and I'd be working for the Mets and it was going to be sweet. And, um, and uh, things changed in college. I, uh, I, uh, learned a lot about systemization of oppression, structural uh, uh, signs of oppression, uh, looking at like racism, international uh, politics and economics. And coming from a background of uh, very hardcore right wing conservative, uh, both my parents, I'm pretty sure, voted for Trump and uh, uh, listened to Sean Hannity at the dinner table for years in high school. Uh, this is obviously a big shift. Um, and uh, after college, I kind of got more into international health and uh, thoughts around international health. And uh, uh, to put it lightly and probably no, uh, no hyperbole, uh, I thought that I would be kind of the, the next generation of, uh, of the Che. The, you know, become a doctor, wait for the revolution to happen in some far off Latin country, and then I would go there. And uh, this was uh, obviously uh, idealistic, um, but also not helpful. Um, because it allowed me to not really engage in politics kind of here in the U.S. As I went through getting into med school, which was a, a three-year process of just trying to get into med school, um, I was living in San Diego, you know, really just kind of enjoying life, um, and uh, finally made it into to med school, and uh, went to Boston for, for med school, and got really into uh, thinking around how to use uh, social determinants of health, social justice uh, in a health in a health way. Uh, so got involved in working in some of the, the um, more lower income people of color areas uh, in Dorchester, Roxbury, uh, and working around social justice issues uh, through health. Uh, it's kind of through this process that I got a little bit more um, 
uh, I guess, politically enlightened, uh, or even just thinking more about what are the ways that we here can create the revolution that we want in these other parts of the world. Uh, and then uh, I took a year off in med school, and that's when Occupy happened. Uh, and I, I was out of the country for Occupy, but uh, as I think for many people here in New York City, uh, Occupy was kind of a, a pivotal moment and changed the way I thought about um, about health and about uh, revolution and about um, justice and that the the capacity to do those things here was was possible in the U.S. and so I came to New York City uh, to uh, to uh, right after Occupy to uh, to join in and, and work with some of the the groups that were that were going through that and uh, I've joined you know various groups throughout the the years here in the city and uh, currently have been involved with the Woodbine uh, Collective out in Ridgewood. Uh, which is, uh, we'll talk about uh, at another time, but is a, an experimental hub in Ridgewood, uh, New York, uh, in Queens, uh, looking at questions around urban autonomy. And uh, my main organizing here has been with the Woodbine Health Autonomy Resource Center, which is in the basement of our collective space, and uh, uh, have been really interested in the last couple of years as I've traveled to Chiapas, to Rojava, to, um, to Athens, uh, to really dive into what what would health autonomy look like here for us in the U.S. and how can we create the conditions for revolutionary care? And so here I am at Mass doing this podcast to talk about this. Uh, so thank you for joining us, um, Babak. You want to? Sure. Um, so thanks again to the folks at Mass Magazine for hosting. Um, so I got into care work, well, healthcare uh, as a child. I was really interested in learning about forms that we could help others and, and also be independent, being an immigrant coming from Iran. Uh, we were always, there was always the, the, the ethic of being able to care for others um, without having to necessarily go to an institution. Um, we didn't have a lot of those resources. So knowing about Che Guevara, knowing about Steve Biko, these were always big influences. And then it wasn't until med school and pre-med where you realized that obviously not a lot of doctors and definitely um, not a lot of pre-med students actually share any of those values uh, about their work. So uh, I got I got involved through social just in, in social justice work through the anti-globalization movement. I was in high school and college at that time. And after 9-11, things sort of died down and went to med school after med school, came back to New York. And it was until, you know, I was involved in different projects, but it wasn't until Occupy when I was able to meet a lot more people who were doing uh, a lot of interesting work that before Occupy, we didn't really have common spaces or encounters to meet one another. And after Occupy, I was able to meet friends who, who shared a lot of the same sort of theoretical angles in 16 Beaver uh, and also more, more recently at Woodbine. And I've also been able to work on a magazine uh, at Common Notions, um, being published through Common Notions called Care Notes. So I think at this point, being influenced a lot by... Uh, up against the wall, motherfuckers, Black Mask, Silvia Federici, uh, and their work on on how they define care work um, has been really powerful. And I think both you and I, Frank, are in this moment where we sort of have a lot of technical knowledge and a lot of technical uh, training in medicine. But how do we 
maintain sort of the integrity of our labor without also inheriting a lot of the institutional privilege, power, and commodification of our labor in, in, into how we practice care. And so that's where I think the podcast is really powerful in meeting other people who are engaged with, um, with care work, uh, understanding what, what that means for all of us, whether we have institutional training in care work or not. I don't think it really makes a difference anymore. And hopefully the podcast can define new, new aspects of how we can practice care work, how care work can contribute to a life autonomous from capital, autonomous from the values of the state and from the institutions that dominate our labor and the desire just to help one another. Um, there's a lot of institutions and a lot of money which co-ops that desire. And hopefully through the course of this podcast, it could be more of an exploration, of an investigation in, in understanding what autonomous care really, really is. And I hope all of you stick with us throughout the podcast. It should be exciting. And thank you for listening. Cool. So uh, one of the things we were actually just laughing before doing this of, uh, you know, we, we have these conversations. Obviously, we've dedicated uh, years of our life to, to this idea of, of, of health um, and, uh, and in the current state of, of politics. This idea of health and health care and access to health care systems is, is really talked about. But when we talk about health autonomy, what do we actually mean? And so one of the things we're going to talk about here is, uh, is, is what is this question that we're trying to answer? And uh, so the podcast, the, the essence for the podcast uh, comes, there's a fundamental notion that, that this way of life is a war against our bodies. Uh, and to be very clear about that, that the air polluting our lungs, our breast milks fill, filled with toxins, uh, our mental angst around here, especially seen in New York City and with the opiate crisis going on in the country is driving us to suicide. These proposed health cuts that uh, the Republicans and Democrats are talking about increase our general precarity in relation to a failing health system, a health system that fundamentally furthers our objectification and dependency on capital. And therefore, the steps we make to gain and share skills and develop these subterranean practices of care can return some of the agency we've lost to the professionalization of medicine and the profitable mystery that is our bodies. As we think about our expanding capacity, we don't want to just fill in the gaps of public health infrastructure. We're not looking to be band-aids for uh, the public health system that, uh, that currently exists or to fight for just more access to what is currently proposed. We need to slowly break our dependency on these institutions in all the ways that we can and also look for ways to use them to our advantage. We think this happens through sharing knowledge and skills, an emphasis on preventative care, and finding ways to manipulate existing structures to allow us to move forward on this path to autonomy. We believe in the utter necessity of revolution, of the development of material lines of power. Questions of care and health autonomy are pivotal to that progression. And from the Greek solidarity clinics to the Zapatistas healthcare from below to the Black Panther clinics and the Gynepunks uh, across the world, there's inspiration for this path all around us. We begin by finding each other. And this podcast, we hope, will be a step in that journey. And so who we think that this audience could be, you know, we really mean it for everyone. Uh, we mean it for all the burnt out health professionals, the students who feel their idealism dying, practitioners of all types of care, from formal training, self-study, or just the daily practices of care we undertake for each other, to the moms, dads, children, grandparents, the nurses, doctors, therapists, acupuncturists, herbalists, midwives, home health aides, everyone. 
for anyone who has listened to a loved one in need, who is revolted at the state of health in our culture. To care is to be human, and this is meant for all those who find beauty in care and struggle against the exploitation of our physical selves. So we hope that uh, between all the conversations that we have, all the thoughts that, that we have, we at least can represent uh, the things that we have learned uh, and, uh, and highlight some of the experiences that, that people have, uh, have shown us. And uh, uh, the, the format for the podcast uh, will be a mix of, uh, you know, we'll talk about current events in the beginning, uh, kind of keep up to date about what is happening around uh, the health, the world of health and the, the world of care in its most broad, uh, broad sense. And then we hope to highlight interviews, voices from maybe uh, areas that are not as, uh, as highlighted in the mainstream media, uh, articles, book reviews, current events. And, and one thing we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast is this idea of creating uh, cultural investigations, uh, re- recreating a culture around care and health and the, the necessity to create new myths around what we mean when we say health. And so we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. One of the other things too is uh, Babak and I, you know, obviously being both doctors um, and both men, you know, we have a lot of privilege in, in the society, um, but that we will have a, a, a circular number of hosts uh, hoping to highlight voices uh, around health and around care that, that don't have a lot of exposure. So while we are here, you know, doing the intro, uh, we hope to have other people uh, talking about health uh, in lieu of, of us, just the, the, the professionals here. Public, anything you want to add? Yeah, and also in in the process of sort of re-understanding what what this work means to us, I think um, we're we're pretty flexible. We're we're still trying to figure out what what care work means. What does health autonomy mean, and and how does that fit into broader project of autonomy? Um, and also, if 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 for some people, care work is a means towards uh, commoning or towards communization. What does that mean? So I think there's a lot of open-ended questions here about how care work ties in to sort of broader autonomous projects. Um, they're being launched in the U S and elsewhere. And it's also an interesting project, uh, in, in, in how this podcast can understand other experiences and analyses, around how care work is something that we do defensively. So community, uh, community initiatives that launch rapid response networks or community initiatives that launch first aid trainings. But at the same time, how does care work also grant us a way out and a way out of the commodification of care, the commodification of everyday life? And so that's where it would be interesting in, in looking at how the podcast grows and seeing how care work is is a means of both defending our bodies and defending our communities, but also as a means of escaping uh, capital and the commodification of everyday life and how we relate to one another. So we hope everyone stays tuned as the podcast grows. I think like us, many of the people that we've also encountered who are concerned about this issue um, it comes from a, a space which is very practical, people that don't have insurance, people that don't have access to basic care, people who've lost loved ones or who themselves are suffering because they don't have access to the most basic necessities uh, to recuperate their bodies from the violence of capital. Uh, and and so there's there's the practical element of it, and then there's also 
you know, beyond defending our bodies and recuperating our bodies against that violence, um, understanding how uh, at the same time there's a horizon and there's a, there's a horizon that this work can tie into how people relate to food or how people relate to housing in a way which isn't destructive to our environment, which isn't destructive um, towards other people uh, in order to meet a certain lifestyle. So um, we, we hopefully uh, will get interviews and conversations that embrace health autonomy uh, and care work in a way which isn't a lifestyle fetish, um, but instead is a way out, and it's a collective way out. And hopefully everyone can contribute to that project. Cool. And even last night we had we were having dinner talking to a, another comrade who is also a doctor, um, and uh, and just the importance of that collectivity um, that we are all struggling. And and I mean this for you know those who are in the the medical profession who who went in with a certain idealism and and are struggling as that idealism dies. Uh, I feel you. And uh, and and hopefully this can this can be a way uh, a way to meet new people and and really focus on that collectivity. Uh, but one thing I want to talk about uh, today is this idea of, of health autonomy uh, and something that that uh, obviously is the, the basis for this podcast, but uh, the basis for, I would say, our work and, and a lot of the, the work that inspires us uh, around the world and, and throughout the decades. And, uh, you know, as as all things in capitalism, the word autonomy has been uh, essentially co-opted and, and, and debased. And there is this general push, especially like with the Silicon Valley mindset, this libertarian idea of autonomy. Uh, uh, and how, you know, one of the things that we want to be very clear about is that w- what do we mean when we say health autonomy? What do we mean when we say care? And obviously this is not going to have a, a, a succinct answer, but hopefully will be a broad-based context for the larger conversation. Um, because when we say health autonomy, uh, you know, personally, I've been very influenced by the Zapatistas, as I, I know you have, Babak, uh, and the Solidarity Clinics in Greece, uh, among many others. But the Zapatistas have this, uh, this very interesting way of describing kind of what their struggle is. And for those who don't know, the Zapatistas are an indigenous uh, group that, um, that have been essentially holding an autonomous territory down in the south of Chiapas. And uh, since they have been so influential for myself and many of those of us who are in this kind of autonomous struggle uh we're definitely gonna have more information and more uh podcasts about them uh, specifically but they have this indigenous idea of the buen vivir um, which is loosely translated as to meaning living well and usually it's placed in the context of uh oppositional to living better so their struggle is to create a new world a new way of being in that world that can let them have clean water let them have access to their land take care of the land for the the future generations to have families to have uh time to laugh to not work all the time to build the communities that give them purpose and uh, as they say that there's the one no with many yeses and, and so when we talk about care you know, the way I think about care and, and health autonomy and this idea of revolutionary care is that it's fuck capitalism, fuck, you know, all this like extractive processes that we go through, like fuck the fact that we have to work and like build careers. Um, but we want to say the many yeses as well. We want to say yes to families, yes to friends, yes to uh, new ways of being in the world, yes to a world where we're not just destroying the world around us. Uh, and so that's what I think about when I think about health autonomy um, and and how we can build uh, a new way of thinking about care. Yeah, absolutely. And also in, in understanding autonomy, there's sort of the prerequisites that, 
we don't get, especially in the U.S. with even the college education um, in the humanities around understanding capital, understanding power, um, understanding migration, uh, and a lot of the issues that we're dealing with now around um, struggles dealing with the environment, dealing with race, dealing with sexual violence. Um, how, how does care work relate and contribute to each of these struggles um, in a productive way? So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting too. One of the things we, uh, you know, I always laugh about this, like whenever we talk about health autonomy and, and, and building structures is, uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a critique around, uh, what has been like a lot of the mutual aid things that we see this idea of, uh, um, uh, recreating health or creating these alternative systems of health. And so there's a big focus on like herbalism and acupuncture and preventative things and also uh, basic first aid training, which I'm totally in support of. But one of the things that I, I often critique is that with that, there's often a, a rejection of uh, public infrastructures, like especially here in New York City. Um, there's a feeling of like, you know, fuck having a job, like, you know, d don't go to the hospitals and things like that. And um, I think one of the things that I really would would like to push as far as when we discuss health autonomy is that uh, these institutions are here, like we don't have the capacity to take care of broken bones. And if I broke a, my leg, I'm not going to go to, uh, uh, you know, some uh, autonomous health center. I'm probably going to go to the hospital and that's totally okay. Yeah. Right. Because of the capacity that we have, the context that we're in. And, uh, but instead of rejecting these institutions, uh, I think a more interesting question is how do we manipulate these institutions, especially for the time period that we're at? How can we bring friends to hospitals when they need to go to hospitals? Um, how do we define when they need to go outside of kind of a corporate, you know, capitalist model of medicine? Um, but then how can we also take what we need from them, the chemo treatments, the, the reproductive rights access, the, the emergency care uh, to benefit uh, our larger struggles um, and uh, and also this deprofessionalization of health and something that we talk a lot about you know how do we how do we get health away from doctors you know which is ironic that two doctors are doing this podcast but. yeah but it's also this this issue with 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 hospitals around deinstitutionalization versus dehospitalization so in 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 sort of looking back again it, it, at the 1960s and the 1970s when in New York City, for example, the Young Lord's occupation of Lincoln Hospital or the peer support systems developed by the Black Panther Party to get patients into hospitals and into clinics to make sure that physicians and healthcare providers in those institutions were addressing people's needs. There was, there was a demand uh, even back then for, for the right to access these hospitals and these resources for people who needed it. But the problem is, it's not, it's not the physical structure itself. It's not to say that all of these hospitals should be shut down. Um, because in, in New York, for example, and across the United States, what we see when hospitals are shut down is luxury condos. It's a process of gentrification. It's a process which is supporting real estate. And, and there's no alternative for that. And so... Um, if we if we do imagine the power of the hospital or the power of physicians and the hierarchy of medicine being disrupted, uh, what's the alternative? And I think that's where a lot of groups um, in the 60s and 70s and the models that we see now in Greece or in Rojava or in Chiapas offer a really interesting alternative in 
pushing towards deinstitutionalization instead of dehospitalization. So, how do we fill former operating rooms um, or, or you know surgery rooms with peer support groups? How do we change the architecture of a hospital from individual clinic rooms to group support to peer support? Um, offering legal aid, offering uh, access uh, to to, um, to to support groups that help people um, fight evictions and foreclosures. How do we have a support group for people who are suffering from rape or sexual violence who come to the hospital? Um, so how do we disrupt the biomedical model? How do we disrupt the, the assembly chain that people go through when they go to a clinic, go to a hospital, and then afterwards deal with the bills? So... There's a lot of elements in, in, in how we sort of unpack the capitalization of care and, and the alternatives that we want to bring back. Because obviously to say that you know, we don't need hospitals or we don't need clinics is, is a luxury. Because if, if you are experiencing marginalization and you are experiencing systematic oppression, um, psychiatric diagnoses and, and medical diagnoses are, are, are in itself, unfortunately, a way of life. And sometimes those diagnoses are imposed um, as a form of oppression, and sometimes they're, they're real. And, and people are, are coming with, with real health problems because of where they live or because of the types of jobs that they have. And we need to find ways where, where there's the collectivization around care. Um, and, 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 and so how does someone with quote unquote, you know, someone with privilege, um, with institutional privilege and knowledge, liberate that knowledge and facilitate the process of collectivizing care, um, instead of making it hierarchical and accessible and commodifying it. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, one of the things I always think about too, with, uh, like health autonomy and, and, uh, medicine particularly is how it, it funnels you like the process of becoming, uh, you know, a doctor or a nurse or really any, anything. I, I have friends who do like acupuncture, but, uh, they finish the course, but then they can't pay for the licensing and, and whatnot. And then how the very act of having the license forces you to have a, a for-profit clinic for just the logistics of it, uh, is that how the institutions themselves, um, push you, you know, that, that, you know, now being a doctor in the U S it's not so much the, the social capital of being a doctor, but the subconscious pressure of there's a certain way of being a doctor that a doctor does X, Y, and Z. They have a nice place. They have a nice car. They are like good citizens and productive members of whatever fucking society. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and nobody talks about that, right? You know, it's just something that's in the air. It's like the, the, the water that surrounds you, as, as they say. Um, but also at the, uh, the other opposite, when you go, once you walk into a hospital as a patient, you're already uh, like so far down a supply chain of, of thought, like a paradigm of thought around the human body, um, that it becomes even hard for people in those institutions, say, uh, who are politically minded or have uh, a critique of oppression to really alter, to go outside of those systems. And, and I think that that's really important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing too is, is especially with the healthcare debate that's going on, um, is, is, uh, like, especially on the left, I feel like there's this push towards, uh, defending 
uh, these institutions. And I think that that's like a very interesting balance and, and hopefully we'll get into more details about that uh, on other episodes. But, um, you know, for example, with single payer, I'm a huge fan of single payer, but I also recognize that single payer is not the answer. Like it's still based on institutions and, and infrastructures that I think here in New York City with Sandy shutting down most of the hospitals in Manhattan and uh, essentially the, you know, the middle to bottom half of Manhattan not having access to emergency and healthcare for months to show that how vulnerable these systems are. These infrastructures, we can't, we can't double down on these in infrastructures and these institutions because inevitably, while I think single payer is a moral argument and that you know, uh, we should have some type of access. Uh, it, it's still dependent on these hospitals that are utterly vulnerable. Right. Um, and, uh, and how do we articulate that like more nuanced argument, um, besides just defending the ACA for example. Right. Exactly. And part of the argument is, is that, you know, we, at least from, from our perspective would probably be defending what we have and demanding everything else. So, of course, it would be great to have single payer. It would be great to defend and, and keep the resources that we have. And, and by doing that, we then work within these institutions that we have. Um, and we work with, with the communities that we're living in um, to, to attack power and, and to attack the commodification of care. So it's not, it's not to create artificial binaries. I think that that really distracts the main objective and that's something that probably keeps us from talking about these issues at work is that if we talk about what we're talking about in this podcast for example at work we're attacked because you know you're not supporting the ACA or you're not supporting Obamacare and you're not supporting uh, Medicaid but at the same time some of the most drastic cuts um, that we've seen against vulnerable populations and communities that have been marginalized have been committed under democratic um, governors, democratic senators, and although there's a larger scale sort of narrative by the democratic party that they support these resources, but in practice, we see that just like any other political apparatus, gentrification, real estate, um, extractivism, all of these processes cannot be interrupted. And the Democrats are no different than the Republicans in that angle. So if there is a single payer model, of course we support it. But then we also ask, well, you know, why didn't you keep the public hospitals all across the United States? California, which has been so vocal against Trump, uh, Governor Cuomo in New York and the rest of the Democratic Party in the New York, which has been so vocal against Trump. Why were they so adamant about cutting half a billion dollars in Medicaid or shutting down public hospitals? hospitals or shutting down public clinics. So um, a, lot of these, a lot of these sort of just like little points have to be dropped and, and we cannot get sucked into that policy alpha male interventionist dialogue because it's, it's really not within our, our, our paradigm. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and just kind of, you know, some other closing thoughts, uh, was you know things that we were talking about last night like around health autonomy this idea of of the spirituality like the struggle for the spirituality of what we're talking about i think that care in so many of these societies that we are influenced by um really have this strong sense of a spirituality and i think on the left there has like with the anti-religious uh connotations of the left that has been a push towards the secularization of struggle 
And I think that that's been really detrimental for us. And, yeah. and kind of like we were talking about yesterday is that, uh, you know, we're obviously we're anti-capitalist, but we're also anti-materialist. We're all anti this way of, of thinking about the world, this, the world as uh, being there just for us um, and, uh, and not being part of it, uh, right. a part of like a natural process. Uh, and that's so into care, you know, even the, the idea of, of like Western care is, is anti-death, you know, it, right. it, but death is, is beautiful. Death is a part of life. Right. Um, and to fight against that is actually to fight against, um, ourselves. Yeah, exactly. um, so, um, but then at the same time, you know, we are very interested in the practicalities of things, you know, um, maybe this is nihilistic or pessimistic, but you know, eventually things are going to get bad here. Uh, if they're not already that bad for certain populations as, as seen by events this past weekend, but how do we, um, how do we learn herbal skills? How do we learn acupuncture? How do we learn preventative care? But how do we also think about what will happen in the future? How do we get ready for to build up a new infrastructure for when uh, reproductive rights are are fully terminated um, or their support is fully terminated by the institutions of of power? You know, how do we prepare um, for uh, the civil war, the, the the ongoing war that we feel in our bodies, um, but that maybe is tangibly expressed in places like Syria, where doctors uh, left the hospitals and were doing surgeries in their living rooms and, right. and created an entire underground network of doctors seen through the black uh, Panthers, uh, many of the struggles here in the U S um, and, uh, and how do we build the infrastructures and the, the new institutions, I think of, of radical care for, for professionals who we need, we need professionals, right? We need doctors, we need nurses, we need licensed people, but to give support for them to pilfer the institutions that they're at, to be ready to lose their licenses, their certifications uh, for a greater cause? And how do we build up the care that maybe is not recognized professionally, like the care of a grandmother, the, you know, the care that your, your parents gave you um, and the, the care that parents give to their children, this, this care that is not recognized as professional care, but is utterly necessary for our struggle. So... Anyway, a long conversation around health autonomy yeah, that, that we'll, we'll never answer in, uh, in a, a, a short podcast. But just to close, uh, we wanted to, to touch on this spiritual aspect, this cultural aspect, that we are trying to create a new myth, a new mythos around struggle. And, uh, you know, art, music, poetry has been co-opted as everything has been co-opted. We see it all the time in New York City with this art for art's sake kind of bullshit. But that art has a beautiful place in, in our struggle and, uh, and a desire to, to push us to new ways of thinking. It also creates a culture. And I think uh, with the unfortunate events of, of Charlottesville, which you know, we have to mention, um, and the death of Heather Heyer, who, who in all sense is a martyr and a comrade, a fallen comrade for us. And, and the, other, the dozens of other people who were injured in, in this battle, they, they are now in the line of many, many people who have been injured and died in this struggle uh, that we gain strength from. Um, and uh, how do we create that culture where um, we honor the dead, but that we also keep fighting like hell for the living? Um, as the, the often quote is. Um, so there's, you know, many websites, please go support, uh, the GoFundMe pages that have been set up for the Charles, uh, Charlottesville folks who have been injured for the family of Heather Heyer, uh, our deepest and sincere condolences and, and for the friends of, of her struggle. And just to wrap up, I wanted to read a, a, a poem that, uh, that has been very influential for me. Um, and each, each, at the end of each podcast, we'll try to do some type of poem or music or something that has been inspiring for us um, as a way to broaden our, our thought. 
So I want to read a poem by uh, Drew Dellinger. It's called Angels and Ancestors. I write words to catch up to the ancestors. An angel told me the only way to walk through fire without getting burned is to become fire. Some days angels whisper in my ear as I walk down the street and I fall in love with every person I meet. And I think maybe this could be a bliss like when Dante met Beatrice. Other days, all I see is my collusion with illusion, ghosts of projection masquerading as the radiant angel of love. You know, I feel like the ancestors brought us together. I feel like the ancestors brought us here and they expect great things. They expect us to say what we think and live how we feel and follow the hard paths that bring us near joy. They expect us to nurture all, all the children. I write poems to welcome angels and conjure ancestors. I pray to the angels of politics and love. I pray for justice sake, not to be relieved of my frustrations. At the same time, burning sage and asking for patience. I march with the people to the border between nations where everything stops except the greed of corporations. Thoughts like comets calculating the complexity of the complicity. There's so much noise in the oceans, the whales can't hear each other. We're making them crazy, driving dolphins insane. What kind of ancestors are we? Thoughts like comets leaving craters in the landscape of my consciousness. I pray to the ancestors and angels. Meet me in the garden. Meet me where spirit walks softly in the cool of the evening. Meet me in the garden under the wings of the bird of many colors. Meet me in the garden of your longing. Every breath is a pilgrimage. Every breath is a pilgrimage to you. I pray to be a conduit. An angel told me the only way to walk through fire, become fire. Well, thanks for listening. Our first episode was super fun. Uh, We have lots of ideas, lots of thoughts, and we're excited to start articulating them. Um, If you have suggestions, thoughts, comments, critiques, please email us at woodbinehealth at gmail.com. Also check out uh, woodbine.nyc for more information about that. And big thanks to Mask Magazine, who has been uh, just a great support and building the studio and and really helping us kind of get our thoughts off the ground. Uh, So, yeah. That's it. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Take care. Hi, and welcome to the brand new Health Autonomy at the End of Empire podcast. This is a semi-monthly investigation into the struggle to create health autonomy and the revolutionary care to build a new world. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm here with uh, my co-host, Babak. You want to say hi? Hi, this is Babak. Uh, and we're going to uh, introduce the podcast today, introduce ourselves and kind of talk a little bit about what we hope to talk about and what, what the, the aims are for this podcast as we, uh, we dive into the, the podcasting world uh, and, and uh, dive into issues around health autonomy. Uh, so just to begin, so my name is Frank. Uh, I'm an ER doctor. Uh, so I work in the ER. Uh, I used to work here in the city and now work at a bunch of places upstate New York. Um, and uh, I've been working uh, around the country doing health stuff. And uh, we said to talk a little bit about the podcast intro and the podcast purpose and um, kind of maybe a little bit of our histories uh, and kind of how we got here to, to be doing a podcast at Mass Magazine. Um, so and then uh, and then talk a little bit about uh, what we mean when we say health autonomy and, and what are some of the issues that we hope to dive into as we progress through this podcast. So like I said, uh, so I, I just finished residency as an ER doctor uh, here in the city, and uh, I've been on a struggle uh, to find health autonomy for the past, uh, you know, probably eight years. Um, and for a lot of a lot of people in medicine, uh, I came through 
through the world of medicine kind of like in a very, uh, um, I guess, traditional way. So I, I initially uh, wanted to become a doctor because I broke my arm a lot when I was young. I wanted to be uh, an orthopedic surgeon after high school and I was going to work for the Mets. And I had a very long trajectory of uh, great med school, great college, great med school, great residency, uh, driving BMWs by the time I was 30 and I'd be working for the Mets and it was going to be sweet. And, um, and, uh, things changed in college. I, uh, I, uh, learned a lot about systemization of oppression, structural, uh, uh, signs of oppression, uh, looking at like racism, international uh, politics and economics and coming from a background of uh, very hardcore right wing conservative, uh, both my parents, I'm pretty sure voted for Trump and, uh, uh, listened to Sean Hannity at the dinner table for years in high school. Uh, this is obviously a big shift. Um, and uh, after college, I kind of got more into international health and uh, thoughts around international health. And uh, uh, to put it lightly and probably no, uh, no hyperbole, uh, I thought that I would be kind of the, the next generation of, uh, of the Che, the, you know, become a doctor, wait for the revolution to happen in some far off Latin country, and then I would go there. And uh, this was uh, obviously uh, idealistic, um, but also not helpful um, because it allowed me to not really engage in politics kind of here in the U.S. As I went through getting into med school, which was a, a three-year process of just trying to get into med school, um, I was living in San Diego, you know, really just kind of enjoying life um, and uh, finally made it into to med school. And I uh, went to Boston for, for med school and got really into uh, thinking around how to use uh, social determinants of health, social justice uh, in a health in a health way. Uh, so got involved in working in some of the, the um, more lower income people of color areas uh, in Dorchester, Roxbury, uh, and working around social justice issues uh, through health. Uh, it's kind of through this process that I got a little bit more um, uh, I guess, politically enlightened, uh, or even just thinking more about what are the ways that we here can create the revolution that we want in these other parts of the world. Uh, and then uh, I took a year off in med school, and that's when Occupy happened. Uh, and I, I was out of the country for Occupy, but uh, as I think for many people here in New York City, uh, Occupy was kind of a, a pivotal moment and changed the way I thought about um, about health and about uh, revolution and about um, justice and that the the capacity to do those things here was was possible in the U.S. and so I came to New York City uh, to uh, to uh, right after Occupy to uh, to join in and, and work with some of the the groups that were that were going through that and uh, I've joined you know various groups throughout the the years here in the city and uh, currently have been involved with the Woodbine uh, Collective out in Ridgewood. Uh, which is, uh, we'll talk about uh, at another time, but is a, an experimental hub in Ridgewood, uh, New York, uh, in Queens, uh, looking at questions around urban autonomy. And uh, my main organizing here has been with the Woodbine Health Autonomy Resource Center, which is in the basement of our collective space, and uh, uh, have been really interested in the last couple of years as I've traveled to Chiapas, to Rojava, to, um, to Athens, uh, to really dive into what, what would health autonomy look like here for us in the U.S. and how can we create the conditions for revolutionary care. And so here I am at Mass doing this podcast to talk about this. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Um, Babak, you want to? Sure. Um, so thanks again to the folks at Mass Magazine for hosting. Um, so I got into care work, well, healthcare care. Uh, as a child, I was really interested in 
learning about forms that we could help others and, and also be independent, being an immigrant coming from Iran. Uh, we were always, there was always the, the, the ethic of being able to care for others um, without having to necessarily go to an institution. Um, we didn't have a lot of those resources. So knowing about Che Guevara, knowing about Steve Biko, these were always big influences. And then it wasn't until med school and pre-med where you realized that obviously not a lot of doctors and definitely um, not a lot of pre-med students actually share any of those values uh, about their work. So uh, I got I got involved through social just in, in social justice work through the anti globalization movement. I was in high school and college at that time, and after nine eleven, things sort of died down, and went to med school. After med school, came back to New York, and it was until you know I was involved in different projects, but it wasn't until Occupy when I was able to meet a lot more people who were doing. Uh, a lot of interesting work that before Occupy, we didn't really have common spaces or encounters to meet one another. And after Occupy, I was able to meet friends who who shared a lot of the same sort of theoretical angles in Sixteen Beaver, uh, and also more more recently at Woodbine. And I've also been able to work on a magazine uh, at Common Notions. Um, being published through Common Notions called Care Notes. So I think at this point, being influenced a lot by uh, Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers, Black Mask, Sylvia Federici, uh, and their work on on how they define care work um, has been really powerful. And I think both you and I, Frank, are in this moment where we sort of have a lot of technical knowledge and a lot of technical uh, training in medicine, but how do we maintain sort of the integrity of our labor without also inheriting a lot of the institutional privilege, power, and commodification of our labor in, in into how we practice care? And so that's where I think the podcast is really powerful in meeting other people who are engaged with um, with care work, uh, understanding what what that means for all of us, whether we have institutional training in care work or not. I don't think it really makes a difference anymore. And hopefully the podcast can define new new aspects of how we can practice care work, how care work can contribute to a life autonomous from capital, autonomous from the values of the state and from the institutions that dominate our labor and the desire just to help one another. Um, there's a lot of institutions and a lot of money which co-ops that desire. And hopefully through the course of this podcast, it could be more of an exploration, of an investigation in, in understanding what autonomous care really, really is. And I hope all of you stick with us throughout the podcast. It should be exciting. And thank you for listening. Cool. So uh, one of the things we were actually just laughing before doing this of, uh, you know, we, we have these conversations. Obviously, we've dedicated uh, years of our life to, to this idea of, of, of health um, and, uh, and in the current state of, of politics. 
this idea of health and health care and access to healthcare systems is, is really talked about. But when we talk about health autonomy, what do we actually mean? And so one of the things we're going to talk about here is, uh, is, is what is this question that we're trying to answer? And uh, so the podcast, the, the essence for the podcast uh, comes, there's a fundamental notion that, that this way of life is a war against our bodies. Uh, and to be very clear about that, that the air polluting our lungs, our breast milks fill, filled with toxins, uh, our mental angst around here, especially seen in New York City and with the opiate crisis going on in the country, is driving us to suicide. These proposed health cuts that uh, the Republicans and Democrats are talking about increase our general precarity in relation to a failing health system, a health system that fundamentally furthers our objectification and dependency on capital. And therefore, the steps we make to gain and share skills and develop these subterranean practices of care can return some of the agency we've lost to the professionalization of medicine and the profitable mystery that is our bodies. As we think about our expanding capacity, we don't want to just fill in the gaps of public health infrastructure. We're not looking to be band-aids for uh, the public health system that, uh, that currently exists or to fight for just more access to what is currently proposed. We need to slowly break our dependency on these institutions in all the ways that we can and also look for ways to use them to our advantage. We think this happens through sharing knowledge and skills, an emphasis on preventative care, and finding ways to manipulate existing structures to allow us to move forward on this path to autonomy. We believe in the utter necessity of revolution, of the development of material lines of power. Questions of care and health autonomy are pivotal to that progression. And from the Greek solidarity clinics to the Zapatistas healthcare from below to the Black Panther clinics and the Gynepunks uh, across the world, there's inspiration for this path all around us. We begin by finding each other. And this podcast, we hope, will be a step in that journey. And so who we think that this audience could be, you know, we really mean it for everyone. Uh, we mean it for the burnt out health professionals, the students who feel their idealism dying, practitioners of all types of care, from formal training, self-study, or just the daily practices of care we undertake for each other, to the moms, dads, children, grandparents, the nurses, doctors, therapists, acupuncturists, herbalists, midwives, home health aides, everyone. For anyone who has listened to a loved one in need, who is revolted at the state of health in our culture. To care is to be human, and this is meant for all those who find beauty in care and struggle against the exploitation of our physical selves. So we hope that uh, between all the conversations that we have, all the thoughts that, that we have, we at least can represent uh, the things that we have learned uh, and, uh, and highlight some of the experiences that, that people have, uh, have shown us. And, uh, uh, the, the format for the podcast, uh, will be a mix of, uh, you know, we'll talk about current events in the beginning, uh, kind of keep up to date about what is happening around, uh, the health, the world of health and the, the world of care in its most broad, uh, broad sense. And then we hope to highlight interviews, voices from maybe uh, areas that are not as, uh, as highlighted in the mainstream media, uh, articles, book reviews, current events. And, and one thing we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast is this idea of creating uh, cultural investigations, uh, re recreating a culture around care and health and the, the necessity to create new myths around what we mean when we say health. And so we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. One of the other things too is uh, Babak and I, you know, obviously being both doctors um, and both men, you know, we have a lot of privilege in, in the society, um, but that we will have a, a, a circular number of hosts uh, hoping to highlight voices uh, around health and around care that, that don't have a lot of exposure. So while we are here, you know, doing the intro, uh, we hope to have other people uh, talking about health uh, in lieu of, of us, just the, the, the professionals here. Bob, anything you want to add? 
Yeah, and also in in the process of sort of re-understanding what what this work means to us, I think um, we're we're pretty flexible. We're we're still trying to figure out what what care work means. What does health autonomy mean, and and how does that fit into broader project of autonomy? Um, and also, if 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 for some people care work is a means towards uh, commoning or towards communization, what does that mean? So I think there's a lot of open-ended questions here about how care work ties in to sort of broader autonomous projects um, that are being launched in the U.S. and elsewhere. And it's also an interesting project uh, in, in, in how this podcast can understand other experiences and analyses around how care work is something that we do defensively. So community, uh, community initiatives that launch rapid response networks or community initiatives that launch first aid trainings. But at the same time, how does care work also grant us a way out and a way out of the commodification of care, the commodification of everyday life? And so that's where it would be interesting in, in looking at how the podcast grows and seeing how care work is is a means of both defending our bodies and defending our communities, but also as a means of escaping uh, capital and the commodification of everyday life and how we relate to one another. So we hope everyone stays tuned as the podcast grows. I think like us, many of the people that we've also encountered who are concerned about this issue, um, it comes from a, a space which is very practical, people that don't have insurance, people that don't have access to basic care, people who've lost loved ones or who themselves are suffering because they don't have access to the most basic necessities uh, to recuperate their bodies from the violence of capital. Uh, and, and so there's there's the practical element of it and then there's also you know beyond defending our bodies and recuperating our bodies against that violence um understanding how uh, at the same time there's a horizon and there's a there's a horizon that this work can tie into how people relate to food or how people relate to housing in a way which isn't destructive to our environment, which isn't destructive um, towards other people uh, in order to meet a certain lifestyle. So um, we, we hopefully uh, will get interviews and conversations that embrace health autonomy uh, and care work in a way which isn't a lifestyle fetish, um, but instead is a way out, and it's a collective way out. And hopefully everyone can contribute to that project. Cool. And even last night we had we were having dinner talking to a, another comrade who is also a doctor, um, and uh, and just the importance of that collectivity um, that we are all struggling. And and I mean this for you know those who are in the the medical profession who who went in with a certain idealism and and are struggling as that idealism dies. Uh, I feel you. And uh, and and hopefully this can this can be a way uh, a way to meet new people and and really focus on that collectivity. Uh, but one thing I want to talk about uh, today is this idea of, of health autonomy uh, and something that that uh, obviously is the, the basis for this podcast, but uh, the basis for, I would say, our work and, and a lot of the, the work that inspires us uh, around the world and, and throughout the decades. And, uh, you know, as as 
all things in capitalism, the word autonomy has been uh, essentially co-opted and, and, and debased. And there is this general push, especially like with the Silicon Valley mindset, this libertarian idea of autonomy. Uh, uh, and how, you know, one of the things that we want to be very clear about is that w what do we mean when we say health autonomy? What do we mean when we say care? And obviously this is not going to have a, a, a succinct answer, but hopefully will be a, a broad-based context for the larger conversation. Um, because when we say health autonomy, uh, you know, personally, I've been very influenced by the Zapatistas, as I, I know you have, Babak, uh, and the Solidarity Clinics in Greece, uh, among many others. But the Zapatistas have this, uh, this very interesting way of describing kind of what their struggle is. And for those who don't know, the Zapatistas are an indigenous uh, group that, um, that have been essentially holding an autonomous territory down in the south of Chiapas. And uh, since they have been so influential for myself and many of those of us who are in this kind of autonomous struggle. Uh, we're definitely going to have more information and more uh, podcasts about them uh, specifically. But they have this indigenous idea of the buen vivir, um, which is loosely translated as to meaning living well. And usually it's placed in the context of uh, oppositional to living better. So their struggle is to create a new world, a new way of being in that world that can let them have clean water, let them have access to their land, take care of the land for the, the future generations, to have families, to have uh, time to laugh, to not work all the time, to build the communities that give them purpose. And uh, as they say, there is the one no with many yeses. And, and so when we talk about care, you know, the way I think about care and, and health autonomy and this idea of revolutionary care is that it's fuck capitalism, fuck, you know, all this like extractive processes that we go through, like fuck the fact that we have to work and like build careers. Um, but we want to say the many yeses as well. We want to say yes to families, yes to friends, yes to uh, new ways of being in the world, yes to a world where we're not just destroying the world around us. Uh, and so that's what I think about when I think about health autonomy um, and and how we can build uh, a new way of thinking about care. Yeah, absolutely. And also in, in understanding autonomy, there's sort of the prerequisites that we don't get, especially in the U S with even the college education, um, in the humanities around understanding capital, understanding power, um, understanding migration, uh, and a lot of the issues that we're dealing with now around, um, struggles dealing with the environment, dealing with race, dealing with sexual violence. Um, how how does care work relate and contribute to each of these struggles um, in a productive way? So um, so yeah, so I, I I totally agree with that. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting too. One of the things we uh, you know I always laugh about this, like whenever we talk about health autonomy and and, and building structures is. Uh, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a critique around uh, what has been like a lot of the mutual aid things that we see, this idea of uh, um, uh, recreating health or creating these alternative systems of health. And so there's a big focus on like herbalism and acupuncture and preventative things and also uh, basic first aid training, which I'm totally in support of. But one of the things that I, I often critique is that with that, there's often a, a rejection of uh, public infrastructures, like especially here in New York City, um, there's a feeling of like, you know, fuck having a job, like, you know, don't go to the hospitals and things like that. And um, I think one of the things that I really would, would like to push as far as when we discuss health autonomy is that uh, these institutions are here, like we don't have the capacity to take care of broken bones. And if I broke a, my leg, I'm not going to go to uh, uh, 
you know, some uh, autonomous health center, I'm probably going to go to the hospital and that's totally okay. Right. Because of the capacity that we have, the context that we're in. And uh, but instead of rejecting these institutions, uh, I think a more interesting question is how do we manipulate these institutions, especially for the time period that we're at? How can we bring friends to hospitals when they need to go to hospitals? Um, how do we define when they need to go outside of kind of a corporate, you know, capitalist model of medicine? Um, but then how can we also take what we need from them, the chemo treatments, the the reproductive rights access, the, the emergency care uh, to benefit uh, our larger struggles um, and, uh, and also this deprofessionalization of health and something that we talk a lot about, you know, how do we, how do we get health away from doctors, you know, which is ironic that two doctors are doing this podcast. But. Yeah. But it's also this, this issue with, with, with hospitals around deinstitutionalization versus dehospitalization. So in, in, in sort of looking back again, it, it, at the 1960s and the 1970s, when in New York City, for example, the Young Lords occupation of Lincoln Hospital or the peer support systems developed by the Black Panther Party to get patients into hospitals and into clinics to make sure that physicians and healthcare providers in those institutions were addressing people's needs. There was, there was a demand uh, even back then for, for the right to access these hospitals and these resources for people who needed it. But the problem is it's not, it's not the physical structure itself. It's not to say that all of these hospitals should be shut down um, because in, in New York, for example, and across the United States, what we see when hospitals are shut down is luxury condos. It's a process of gentrification. It's a process which is supporting real estate, and, and there's no alternative for that. And so um, if, we, if we do imagine the power of the hospital or the power of physicians and the hierarchy of medicine being disrupted, uh, what's the alternative? And I think that's where a lot of the groups um, in the 60s and 70s and the models that we see now in Greece or in Rojava or in Chiapas offer a really interesting alternative in pushing towards deinstitutionalization instead of dehospitalization. So how do we fill former operating rooms um, or, or you know surgery rooms with peer support groups? How do we change the architecture of a hospital from individual clinic rooms to group support to peer support? Um, offering legal aid, offering uh, access uh, to, to, um, to, to support groups that help people um, fight evictions and foreclosures. How do we have a support group for people who are suffering from rape or sexual violence who come to the hospital? Um, so how do we disrupt the biomedical model? How do we disrupt the, the assembly chain that people go through when they go to a clinic, go to a hospital, and then afterwards deal with the bills? So... There's a lot of elements in, in, in how we sort of unpack the capitalization of care and, and the alternatives that we want to bring back. Because obviously to say that you know, we don't need hospitals or we don't need clinics is, is a luxury. Because if, if you are experiencing marginalization and you are experiencing systematic oppression, um, psychiatric diagnoses and, and medical diagnoses are, are, are in itself, unfortunately, a way of life. And sometimes those diagnoses are imposed um, as a form of oppression, and sometimes they're, they're real. And, and people are, are coming with, with real health problems because of where they live or because of the types of jobs that they have. And we need to find ways where, where there's the collectivization around care. 
Um, and, 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 and so how does someone with quote unquote, you know, someone with privilege, um, with institutional privilege and knowledge, liberate that knowledge and facilitate the process of collectivizing care, um, instead of making it hierarchical and accessible and commodifying it. No, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, one of the things I always think about too, with, uh, like health autonomy and, and, uh, medicine particularly is how it, it funnels you like the process of becoming, uh, you know, a doctor or a nurse or really any, anything. I, I have friends who do like acupuncture, but, uh, they finish the course, but then they can't pay for the licensing and, and whatnot. And then how the very act of having the license forces you to have a, a for-profit clinic for just the logistics of it, uh, is that how the institutions themselves, um, push you, you know, that, that, you know, now being a doctor in the U S it's not so much the, the social capital of being a doctor, but the subconscious pressure of there's a certain way of being a doctor that a doctor does X, Y, and Z. They have a nice place. They have a nice car. They are like good citizens and productive members of whatever fucking society. Um, and, uh, and nobody talks about that, right? You know, it's just something that's in the air. It's like the, the, the water that surrounds you as, as they say. Um, but also at the, uh, the other upset, when you go, once you walk into a hospital as a patient, you're already, uh, like so far down a supply chain of, of thought, like a paradigm of thought around the human body, um, that it becomes even hard for people in those institutions, say, uh, who are politically minded or have uh, a critique of oppression to really alter, uh, to go outside of those systems. And, and I think that that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing too is, is especially with the healthcare debate that's going on, um, is, is, uh, like, especially on the left, I feel like there's this push towards, uh, defending, uh, these institutions. And I think that that's like a very interesting balance and, and hopefully we'll get into more details about that uh, on other episodes. But, um, you know, for example, with single payer, I'm a huge fan of single payer, but I also recognize that single payer is not the answer. Like it's still based on institutions and, and infrastructures that I think here in New York city with Sandy shutting down most of the hospitals in Manhattan and, uh, essentially the, you know, the middle to bottom half of Manhattan, not having access to emergency and healthcare for months to show that how vulnerable these systems are, these infrastructures, we can't we can't double down on these in infrastructures and these institutions because inevitably, while I think single payer is a moral argument and that, you know, uh, we should have some type of access, uh, it, it's still dependent on these hospitals that are utterly vulnerable. Right. Um, and, uh, and how do we articulate that like more nuanced argument, um, besides just defending the ACA for example. Right. Exactly. And part of the argument is, is that, you know, we, at least from, from our perspective would probably be defending what we have and demanding everything else. So of course it would be great to have single payer. It would be great to defend and, and keep the resources that we have. And, and by doing that, we then work within these institutions that we have. Um, and we work with, with the communities that we're living in. Um, to to attack power and, and to attack the commodification of care. So it's not it's not to create artificial binaries. I think that that really distracts the main objective, and that's something that probably keeps us from talking about these issues at work. Is that if we talk about what we're talking about in this podcast, for example, at work, we're attacked because you know you're not supporting the ACA or you're not supporting Obamacare and you're not supporting. Uh, Medicaid, but at the same time, some of the most drastic cuts 
um, that we've seen against vulnerable populations and communities that have been marginalized have been committed under democratic um, governors, democratic senators, and although there's a larger scale sort of narrative by the Democratic Party that they support these resources, but in practice, we see that just like any other political apparatus, gentrification, real estate, um, extractivism, all of these processes cannot be interrupted. And the Democrats are no different than the Republicans in that angle. So if there is a single payer model, of course we support it. But then we also ask, well, you know, why didn't you keep the public hospitals all across the United States? California, which has been so vocal against Trump, uh, Governor Cuomo in New York and the rest of the Democratic Party in the New York, which has been so vocal against Trump. Why were they so adamant about cutting half a billion dollars in Medicaid or shutting down public hospitals? Hospitals or shutting down public clinics. So, um, a lot of these, a lot of these sort of just like little points have to be dropped, and and we cannot get sucked into that policy alpha male interventionist dialogue because it's it's really not within our our, our paradigm. So yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, and just kind of you know some other closing thoughts. Uh, was the, you know things that we were talking about last night like around health autonomy this idea of, of the spirituality like the struggle for the spirituality of what we're talking about i think that care in so many of these societies that we are influenced by um, really have this strong sense of a spirituality and i think on the left there has like with the anti-religious uh, connotations of the left had a, has been a push towards the secularization of struggle and I think that that's been really detrimental for us. And, yeah. and kind of like what we were talking about yesterday is that, uh, you know, we're obviously we're anti-capitalist, but we're also anti-materialist. We're all anti this way of, of thinking about the world, this the world as uh, being there just for us um, and uh, and not being part of it, uh, right. a part of like a natural process. Uh, and that's so into care. You know, even the the idea of, of like Western care is is anti-death, you know, it, right. it, but death is is beautiful. Death is a part of life. Right. Um, and to fight against that is actually to fight against um, ourselves. Yeah. Um, so, um, but then at the same time, you know, we are very interested in the practicalities of things, you know, um, maybe this is nihilistic or pessimistic, but you know, eventually things are going to get bad here. Uh, if they're not already that bad for certain populations as, as seen by events this past weekend, but how do we, um, how do we learn herbal skills? How do we learn acupuncture? How do we learn preventative care? About how do we also think about what will happen in the future? How do we get ready for to build up a new infrastructure for when uh, reproductive rights are are fully terminated, um, or their support is fully terminated by the institutions of of power? You know, how do we prepare um, for uh, the civil war, the, the the ongoing war that we feel in our bodies, um, but that maybe is tangibly expressed in places like Syria, where doctors. Uh, left the hospitals and were doing surgeries in their living rooms and, right. and created an entire underground network of doctors seen through the Black uh, Panthers, uh, many of the struggles here in the U.S. Um, and, uh, and how do we build the infrastructures and the, the new institutions, I think, of, of radical care for, for professionals who we need? We need professionals, right? We need doctors. We need nurses. We need licensed people. But to give support for them to pilfer the institutions that they're at, to be ready to lose their licenses, their certifications uh, for a greater cause? And how do we build up 
the care that maybe is not recognized professionally, like the care of a grandmother, the, you know, the care that your, your parents gave you, um, and the, the care that parents give to their children, this, this care that is not recognized as professional care, but is utterly necessary for our struggle. So anyway, a long conversation around health autonomy that that we'll, we'll never answer in, uh, in, uh, a short podcast, but just to close, uh, we wanted to to touch on this spiritual aspect, this cultural aspect that we are trying to create a new myth, a new mythos around struggle. And, uh, you know, art, music, poetry has been co-opted as everything has been co-opted. We see it all the time in New York City with this art for art's sake kind of bullshit. But that art has a beautiful place in, in our struggle and, uh, and a desire to, to push us to new ways of thinking. It also creates a culture. And I think uh, with the unfortunate events of, of Charlottesville, which you know, we have to mention, um, and the death of Heather Heyer, who, who in all sense is a martyr and a comrade, a fallen comrade for us. And, and the, other, the dozens of other people who were injured in, in this battle, they, they are now in the line of many, many people who have been injured and died in this struggle uh, that we gain strength from. Um, and uh, how do we create that culture where um, we honor the dead, but that we also keep fighting like hell for the living? Um, as the, the often quote is. Um, so there's, you know, many websites, please go support, uh, the GoFundMe pages that have been set up for the Charles, uh, Charlottesville folks who have been injured for the family of Heather Heyer, our, our deepest and sincere condolences and, and for the friends of, of her struggle. And just to wrap up, I wanted to read a, a, a poem that, uh, that has been very influential for me. Um, and each, each, at the end of each podcast, we'll try to do some type of poem or music or something that has been inspiring for us um, as a way to broaden our, our thought. So I want to read a poem by uh, Drew Dellinger. It's called Angels and Ancestors. I write words to catch up to the ancestors. An angel told me the only way to walk through fire without getting burned is to become fire. Some days angels whisper in my ear as I walk down the street and I fall in love with every person I meet. And I think maybe this could be a bliss like when Dante met Beatrice. Other days, all I see is my collusion with illusion, ghosts of projection masquerading as the radiant angel of love. You know, I feel like the ancestors brought us together. I feel like the ancestors brought us here and they expect great things. They expect us to say what we think and live how we feel, and follow the hard paths that bring us near joy. They expect us to nurture all all the children. I write poems to welcome angels and conjure ancestors. I pray to the angels of politics and love. I pray for justice's sake, not to be relieved of my frustrations. At the same time, burning sage and asking for patience. I march with the people to the border between nations, where everything stops except the greed of corporations. Thoughts like comets calculating the complexity of the complicity. There's so much noise in the oceans, the whales can't hear each other. We're making them crazy, driving dolphins insane. What kind of ancestors are we? Thoughts like comets leaving craters in the landscape of my consciousness. I pray to the ancestors and angels. Meet me in the garden. Meet me where spirit walks softly, in the cool of the evening. Meet me in the garden, under the wings of the bird of many colors. Meet me in the garden of your longing. Every breath is a pilgrimage. Every breath is a pilgrimage to you. I pray to be a conduit. An angel told me, the only way to walk through fire, become fire. 
Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we have lots of ideas, lots of thoughts, and we're excited to start articulating them. Um, if you have suggestions, thoughts, comments, critiques, please email us at woodbinehealth uh, at gmail.com. Also check out uh, woodbine.nyc uh, for more information about that. And big thanks to Mask Magazine, who has been uh, just a great support and building the studio and, and really helping us kind of get our thoughts off the ground. Uh, so, yeah. That's it. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, take care.